All right, Genesis chapter 10 we're going to look at. Genesis chapter 10 and 11 we're going to cover. Um, and um, Lord willing. And uh, um, we are um, at the last Sunday. This is Tov Toberfest tonight. If you've been with us, Tov is the word for good in Hebrew. And so we've called this Tov Tober. And um, uh, so Tov Toberfest, we're looking forward to that. Also known as the Reformation celebration, some would call it. Uh, that's tonight. So... Uh, uh, just a reminder, we are looking at this, this text from Genesis 1 through 11 uh, in the, as its genre, uh, as story, as narrative. Not as story as in false. That's not what I mean. Some people will say, don't say the word story because what people hear is that it's false. Well, what I'm saying is story because that's its genre, its narrative. And so it's not, we're not looking at it and reading it as if it's a history book. We're not reading it as if it is a science book. We're looking at it as if it's a storybook, because that's what it is. It's narrative. So we're not just looking at it and saying, here's what's happened in, in history, in time, and then saying, what can we learn from what's happened in history? Just list of facts. We're looking at it and saying, what is the point of the author? What's the author trying to get across to us? The author is crafting a story in a particular way in order to present a theological truth. And so we want to look at, okay, what is the authorial intent? What's Moses, in this case, trying to give us by going through these things that have happened? Why is he arranging the story in that way? Why is he repeating those things? Why is he quoting these people? And looking for what does the author have for us? We're looking at it as if it is a story because that's what it is. Uh, we've, we've talked about how the... Um, the book of Genesis is separated um, most obviously by this phrase, these are the generations of. You'll see that at the very beginning of, of chapter 10. See verse 1? These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Um, you'll see that in the middle of chapter 11 as well. These are the generations of Shem, Okay, at, um, towards the end of Genesis chapter 11. Now these are the generations of Terah. Okay, you see how these things are separated um, and kind of a double separation there. Um, so you'll see that throughout. We've seen that a couple times already. You'll see that throughout. And uh, that's the way Genesis is divided. We'll look at what's going on in those sections. Okay, one of the things we've looked at, it's gonna, we're going to see again tonight, is a theme of unity within diversity. So, diversity not being a bad thing, but being a good thing. And is not the enemy of unity. Diversity is not the enemy of unity, necessarily. What is it that breaks unity? We saw this at the very beginning. What is it that breaks unity? What breaks unity is sin. What do Adam and Eve do when they sin? Their unity within, between themselves is broken, demonstrated by putting on clothes. And then the unity between them and God is broken, demonstrated by them trying to hide. <laughs> trying to hide from the God who just made everything. And they're trying to hide. And um, sin has broken the unity. What breaks the unity between Cain and Abel? These two brothers 
that ought to be unified. And it says it over and over, his brother, his brother, his brother, his brother. What, what breaks the unity there? Sin breaks unity. Murder, in that case. Then we get into, uh, last week we covered the, the story of Noah. And here we see that Noah sins. No, sorry. Man sins. Man sins. And God judges in a significant way. He judges because the thoughts and intentions of man's hearts is only evil continually. God judges and he changes the way man lives in the world because of this judgment God judges. But we also see that he also saves. He saves a people, Noah and his family. He saves them. He saves them and then says at the end there that he saves them because man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Man needs saving. He saves them, rescues them. There's kind of a, a decreation and recreation in the Noah narrative. And there's recreation with the flood. It seems like there's language that sounds like he's starting over with Noah. Right? Remember what, what did God command three times after Noah and his family came off the ark? What did he command three times after Noah and his family came off the ark? It's a recommand that he gave Adam and Eve. And the command is, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He does it in chapter 8, verse 17, in chapter 9, verse 1, in chapter 9, verse 7. Three times. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And this is what we're going to see. That exact command is what is going to be covered here in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Okay? So, let's get into Genesis chapter 10. Um, I don't plan to spend too long on this chapter, nor too long in my sermon tonight, but as the teens know, just because I say that doesn't mean it actually will happen. Okay, so Genesis chapter 10. I want to look at this. Uh, first, though, first though, note the oracle of Noah. Look what Noah says at the end of chapter 9. I only touched on this briefly last week, so I want to read this to you. And I want us to be reminded what is going on here. Remember how the story of Noah ends? It doesn't end like all the happy books, the happy kids' books, normally. I don't know, I haven't read them all. But it doesn't end like a lot of kids' books end, um, uh, probably because of what happens. Uh, but Noah gets drunk, and then he ends up naked, and uh, Ham doesn't take care of him, and she gets his brothers, and they take care of him. And though, so, at the end of this chapter, Noah, chapter, verse 24, Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Verse 26, he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So you see where the cursing goes. The cursing goes towards Ham, towards Canaan, and then blessing goes to primarily Shem, but also Japheth, the three sons of Noah covered there. Ham is cursed, Canaan is cursed, Shem receives the blessing, Japheth is to be enlarged, although living, living in the blessing 
that Shem receives. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Is this going to happen? Well, this chapter in chapter 10, I'm not going to read um, chapter 10 because I, I can't read all those names. Uh, so I'm going to uh, touch on a couple of highlights and what I think the author is trying to get across to us in chapter 10. In a genealogy, he's got something to say. Look, um, this chapter, in my opinion, is a description of how the earth is filled and how it was filled by those who were blessed and by those who were cursed. Okay? Now, look with me. There are three summary statements that are going to be really helpful for us. Okay? Look at verse 5 as a summary statement, verse 20 as a summary statement, and verse 31 as a summary statement. Then, verse 32 as the big summary statement. So, we're going to look at those three summary statements and see what's going on here. Okay. Look at verse 5. This is, from verse 2, you see, this is the sons of Japheth. Verse 5, from these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with their own language, by their clans, in their nations. Okay? So Japheth, coastland peoples, and they're in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Now, verse 6 and following, you see the sons of Ham. Remember, the sons of Ham are the ones who are cursed. They receive the curse from Noah. Ham, look at the summary statement there in verse 20. These are the sons of Ham. By their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Sound familiar? Even in that, you see... Um, Babel mentioned as well, which we'll get to in chapter 11. Verse 31, you see another summary statement there. The sons of Shem. These are the sons of Shem. By their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So you have the coastland peoples of Japheth in their lands, each with their own language, by their clans and their nations, and the sons of Ham, clans, languages, lands, nations. Shem, clans, languages, lands, nations. Then this final summary. These are the clans, this is verse 32, sorry, this is verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So, I want you to note the divisions that are happening here. The emphasis on the diversity that you see here. Look at the divisions that have happened. There's divisions, uh, one author says there's anthropological divisions. In other words, like um, origin, who they're coming from, their kind of tribal language. There's linguistic division there, political division, and um, geographical division. You see that with clans, languages, lands, nations. There's different divisions happening here. So, to summarize chapter 10, in my opinion, I think you would notice that there is a couple of things happening here. There's a similarity mentioning, mentioned here with the repetition that we see and with the similarity in origin, the sons of Noah. But also, there's diversity. Because of their differences in languages, 
in territory, in politics, and um, in what the Lord's doing there. So, what is going on with all of that? I think the next chapter is going to help us significantly with that. So, take note of what's happening in Genesis chapter 10, this diversity, somewhat of a similarity, but a huge emphasis on the diversity that's happening um, in and the lack of unity there. Okay, Genesis chapter 11, and what I've titled Bad Unity. Okay, so look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, the, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Okay, that sounds repetitive to me, yeah? They had one language and the same words. In other, in other words, this is, they're unified by their language, what's happening here. So, um, some of you will understand better than others the effect that language has on unity and the effect that it has on diversity. We live in a very unilingual country, don't we? In our culture today, it's, we're very unilingual. One language that uh, is often very unifying. Have you ever been to another country and felt very other because you can't speak the language? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm in that country. I, I remember when I first went to um, uh, Belgium and France when I was in high school, I uh, remember thinking, I don't, I don't even know how to get around here. I know like two words in French. Okay, one word in French, I think. I, I know zero words in um, whatever they speak in Belgium, mostly French. Uh, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't know even how to get around. I remember thinking that when I went to, um, uh, when I was in Panama, the country of Panama. And my mom's a Spanish teacher, so I pretend to know Spanish sometimes. But I get in Panama, my brother's living down there to learn the language, and I, do, I just don't know how to get around. I mean, when we first arrived, there was like conflict between the driver and to, between law enforcement. And I'm thinking, I have no idea what's going on here. Am I going to Panamanian jail? I have no idea. Is this good? It sounds like it's not good, and it wasn't good. But I didn't end up in Panamanian jail. Thank the Lord. Okay, so... It can, you can feel very other. So I talked to my younger brother. I was talking about my older brother in Panama, but my younger brother, uh, Jack, um, he is actually uh, studying language right now. He is, uh, he is partnered with Wycliffe Bible Translation, and he is looking to go to um, Francophone Africa, French-speaking Africa, and to translate the scriptures into languages that don't have the Bible in their language. Like, there's still languages that don't have the Bible? A lot. A lot. So, if I were to ask you, some of you might know this, I, so I called my brother this afternoon, like, help me out here. Um, I, I said, how many, if I were to ask you how many languages there are in the world, what would you guess? Don't say it out loud. What would you guess? Like, I don't know. 18, 500, um, 600, and he tells me there are just over 7,000 
different languages in the world. And that's a, that's a moving number because some languages die off and then there's new ones formed rather, rather rapidly. He said Papua New Guinea has the most languages for a country. It has 850 languages in one country. How about this? Around 2,100 languages don't have any of the Bible. None of the Bible. So the 2,100 languages that don't have any of the Bible. So that's not including the projects that are happening right now through ministries like Wycliffe in translating into known languages because they already have part of the Bible. It's not including them. The ones that don't have any of the Bible and no one's working on it currently. So that's why my brother, um, he got the brains in the family in case you were wondering. Um, that's why he's working to do something like this. But he's explained to me that language can be very unifying and it can also be very divisive. It makes outsiders feel very other. On the other hand, it, so it can be very unifying on one hand, it can be very divisive on the other hand. So we might be different in race, different in color, different height, different weight, but if we both speak the same language, there's oftentimes this instant connection. Ever been somewhere where no one is speaking your language and then, and then you hear their language? You hear, I mean, you hear your language, you go off in the distance and you're like, hey, it's my people. Like, you, all you did was hear it. And you're like, hey, 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 where? You have no idea what they look like. No idea. And you, you hear it and you're like, yes, let's talk because we can. Um, he was explaining to me, he just recently came back from Ivory Coast, my brother did. He said there's 75 different languages in that country, and they've separated geographically into four different sections based upon the language family. So language family would be like the romance family, okay? So they don't necessarily understand each other, but they're separated even by that. Um, separated based on their languages. He tells a story of um, a comedian, a famous comedian, who is from South Africa. He learned lots of languages and the accent to go with the language. He's dark-complected, and one day, men were walking behind him, talking to each other about how they're going to mug this guy. So, this guy hears what they're saying and knows what they're saying, and he turns around with a joke and says, well, if you're going to mug somebody, I want in. He said there was an instant change in countenance, and there was immediate familiarity, connection. Even though they looked different, they assumed because he was dark-complected, he would not know this language, but he did. It's amazing what language can do. Do you see how unifying language can be? Can you feel that? So, even though people look different from each other, language can bring people together, unify. Now, imagine if all people had one language, they were speaking the same words. Imagine what they could do. All unified. That would be amazing, right? Incredible. Maybe. Look at verse 2. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. 
Verse 3, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. You see what they say there? We're going to make a building. We're going to make a, a city, sorry, a city and a tower that's top in the heavens. And... Let us, make, let us make a name for ourselves so that we don't get dispersed all over the face of the earth. What was God's command coming off the ark? Three times. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the sin here is, for some reason I grew up hearing this story thinking that the sin was they built a tower too tall. They're trying to get to God by building a tower. And what's going on here is their sin is they want to make a name for themselves. We are going to make a name for ourselves. Look at us. And we're not going to be dispersed over the face of the earth like God commanded. We actually know something better. And it's us being together. Look what we can do when we're together. Pride and disobedience. Pride We will make a name for ourselves and disobedience. One might lead to the other. So the Lord, verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord says, wow, that's a really cool tower. No, he doesn't say that. The Lord said in verse 6, behold, They are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. The Lord sees the city and the tower and sees their unity and says this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Then the Lord brings judgment. What's wrong with building a city and a huge tower? Well, so you know, story is not about a tower. At first reading, it looks like even here that the Lord's trying to stifle man's abilities. But remember what's at the core of their desires. What is driving the building of the city and the tower? It's their own pride and disobedience. The pride of man, thinking that, heard one person say, thinking that he can manipulate God. Look what I can do. See, this is what's best. That we all stay, see, my way, our way, that we decided our way is the best way. See, look, look what we can do. That seems so silly to manipulate God like that, to think they can manipulate God like that. The pride of man is there. The disobedience of man, thinking he can decide what's best. Look at how these amazing, look at these amazing things we can do. I I get to decide what's good, not God. I get to decide, not God. God says to be dispersed, fill the earth, have dominion. No, no, we're going to get in one location, and I decide what's best. So, verse 7, 9 through 9, the Lord dispersed them. Come, the Lord says, let us Go down 
and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off the building, they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the, the Lord, there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The Lord gets what he wants. The Lord dispersed them, he says, two times, verse 8 and verse 9. One author said, The present number of languages that form national barriers is a monument to sin. It reminds us how sinful we are. The rainbow reminds us of God's promise. It reminds us of how seriously God takes sin and how he rescues from that. Language differences remind us how seriously God takes sin, pride, and disobedience. The world, again, is going to look different. The Lord is restructuring everything. And at the end of chapter 11, I mean, at the end of this section here, at the end of the, the generations of Japheth, we see, we see no, very little hope. Leaves the reader wondering what is going to happen next. The generations of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What's going to happen? Then comes Shem. The generations of Shem. Then the generations of Terah. Um, I'm going to attempt to read verses 27 and following. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's, Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Seems repetitious there. Pause there. Seems repetitious. She's barren and she has no child. She didn't have a child in the past. There's no having child, children in the future. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, in, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and, you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here, God steps in again. He's going to create a new way of living again. In Genesis chapter 3 through 11, there has been this downward spiral of sin. Things aren't looking good, but God responds graciously. He gives hope. He says, Abram, give up everything that you have, your country and your family, and go to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and all the families of the earth will be blessed. He tells them, in my opinion, two imperatives here. Two imperatives. Go, be a blessing. 
Two imperatives. Go at the beginning of verse one and be a blessing at the end of verse two. Um, translated in ESV, so that you will be a blessing. I take that to be an imperative. Be a blessing. Go, be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is going to use Abram and his descendants to be a blessing. Now, you ought to have picked up on a problem. He's going to use Abram and his descendants. He's going to make a great nation of Abram. Let me ask you, what do you need to start a nation? Anybody ever started a nation before? Didn't think so. What do you need to start a nation? People? Land? Yeah, those are two pretty important things. So he's saying here, go and be a blessing, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. You need people. Well, there's a problem. Abram and Sarai, they're supposed to leave by themselves. Of course, they take Lot with them, as you know. They're supposed to leave, go, go away from your family, your kindred, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you, um, even though you can't have kids. What trust, what belief in God? And then, of course, they get to the land, and there's already people in the land, and there's a famine. Um, so, but God's going to work. God is going to use Abram, Sarai, in significant ways. God is going to use a nation to bring people to himself. People will see God's work in this nation and decide to follow him. Like Moses was, jeal- Moses was jealous for in Numbers 14. Remember that this morning? However, If you read the rest of Genesis, and I hope you have or will, there's a lot of terrible things that happen in Genesis. Abraham immediately goes and sins by taking Lot. Abraham and Sarai leads and decides that she's not going to have kids, but Hagar's going to have a kid for Abraham. Abraham. Sin. What is going on here? Abram, Isaac, Jacob, all have issues, but the Lord uses them. Then, then Joseph, he seems to be doing so much right. And at the beginning of the story, everything seems to be going so wrong for him. What is going on? Then the Lord turns it for good. And you have this huge statement at the end of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50, he says, you meant, Joseph said to his brothers, spoiler alert, he says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That ought to hearken us back to Genesis chapter 1, when God took what was unproductive and uninhabitable, God took what was chaotic and created good. What did he say almost in, in almost every day after he created? What did he say? It was good. And at the very end, he said, it is very good. Good. He takes chaos and turns it for good. Do you trust him? Do we trust him? We can be so tempted to look around and say, things are out of control. I don't understand why God put me in this family. 
I don't understand why God put me at this workplace. I've been really meditating on and intrigued by the story of Job. May I commend it to you. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Still, we look. And is every family on the earth blessed? How will the Lord do this? He will do this through the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3. He will do this through the seed of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12 and following. He will do this through Christ. Every family on the earth blessed through Christ. Enter into the blessing by deciding to follow Jesus. And though things go badly here, we're actually living for something else. We're living here for something there. For a different land. Implications for us. Just a couple. Number one, be unified. Be unified. We have major differences. Race, language, accent, height, weight, country, family, heritage, state you're from, pride in that. But I think a big point from Genesis chapter 10 and 11 is that we ought to be unified. There are differences, but may we be unified. We ought, we ought to be unified underneath the teaching and blessing of the Lord. That's where we ought to be unified. Our faith in him ought to unify us. Just imagine what we could do if we were unified, not under pride and disobedience, but under humility and obedience. Imagine what we could do. We could turn the world upside down, and that's exactly what happened in the first century. Jesus comes as the perfect, humble servant, obedient servant. Christ is the one who comes and calls the people to himself. Christ is the one who unifies. We are unified because we're connected in Christ. Despite our languages, despite our differences, we're unified because we have Christ. I heard one person say, I have more in common with the believer on the other side of the world than I do with the unbeliever in front of me at Mickey D's. Pursue unity. Well, how do we do that? Pursue unity through humility. It's the opposite of what the people at Babel try to do. They're pursuing unity based upon their pride and disobedience. How do we pursue unity as Christ followers? Unity through humility. And I think that's the point. So this is the second implication. God requires humble obedience. Humble obedience. Through humili- uh, unity through humility. I think this is best exemplified in the person of Christ, shown to us in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, Paul says to the Philippian church. Clear joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Well, how's that supposed to happen? Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's where we find unity. In humility. So, how's that going? 
How's that going? You're pursuing unity through humble obedience, through serving, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counting others as more significant than yourselves, even your little brother or sister as more significant than yourselves, teens. More significant than you. Well, I'm the oldest, so it's like me. I get to decide everything. But you know what? You count them as more significant than yourselves. Aren't brothers and sisters supposed to fight? No. Okay. That's it. No. What about at work? What about in this church? Others is more. You care about their interests just as much as you care about your interests. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Submit to him. Pride leads to disobedience. And a major point in Genesis so far is that God, as one author puts it something like this, God will not let prideful rebellion succeed. It won't happen. He will win in this life or the next. So give it up. Give it up. Give up trying to follow yourself, thinking that you know what's best. Your ideas of of how things should go are what's best. Submit to Christ. Submit to the teachings of the Lord. In humble obedience, follow him. Number three, follow Jesus. The one who gives blessing has come. Receive him. Trust in him. He's paid the penalty for our sins. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. This is a gift to us by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And then check this out. Look what Revelation chapter 5 has to say about all this. (laughs) Look. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, Lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God. From every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You know what's coming? We're all going to be gathered around the throne. Every nation, tribe, people. Language, every family of the earth, we're going to be singing to our great God, worthy are you. Worthy is he alone. What a gift. That's where we're headed. Chapter chapter 7, verse 9, same thing. Follow him. Follow him with your lives. Give up everything. Through humble obedience, follow him. Jesus, let us pray to that end. Dear God, we love you so much. We are so thankful that you have given us the gift of faith and repentance, those of us who are followers of yours. Thank you for sending your son, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, to take the penalty for our sins so that through our belief, our trust in you, we can have life.
Thank you for this gift. Through faith alone and Christ alone, to your glory alone, so that no man can boast. It is all the work of yours. Lord, help us to pursue unity through humility. To pursue unity even in the midst of diversity. We pursue each other by serving each other, by becoming a slave to each other. And it's because we love you so much. We want to fall underneath your teachings. We want to obey you with our lives. So those who are here have not decided to follow you. Give them the gift of faith and repentance. Give them the gift of humility to submit themselves to you. Work in their hearts. And they choose to follow you today. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for the work that you do in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.